Good afternoon. It has been six weeks since our last sermon on Hosea. We saw how Hosea presented familiar truth in unfamiliar ways. I really love Hosea. It enabled me to think about what I have known all this while in a fresh way. Basically, Hosea, like the other prophets of Israel, have basically two messages. Because they violated the Mosaic Covenant, they will go to exile because they worship idols. They violated the Ten Commandments, refused to repent, they go to exile. But then they will return from exile, restoration. That's the basic message of the prophets. But Hosea put it in a very amazing way. He calls Hosea the name one of his children, not my people. Another way of saying it, you go to exile. You see, when they came out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant through Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. God said, if you were to keep this covenant, that basically means obey the Ten Commandments, you shall truly be my people, I will be your God. That was the covenant. And when God said, not my people, that means God was revoking that covenant. God said, if you violate the covenant, after warnings and warnings, you refuse to repent, you go to exile. So when God calls Hosea the name, that child, not my people, is another way of saying, you go to exile. And uh, we also saw the reason why they go to exile is because they did not know God. They did not know God because they did not keep the commandments. You see, the commandments were expressions of who God was and who God is. By not keeping the commandments, they are rejecting who God is. So how could they know God when they reject who God is by rejecting the commandments? So they did not know God. And why did they violate the commandments? They did not fear God. And that began because of Jeroboam. Remember after the split, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the, the king, first king of the northern kingdom, he built golden calves to represent God. It was not meant to be idols for, of foreign gods. It was meant to be representing their God. But that violates the second commandment. You shall not be an image of even God himself. Because by doing that, they locate God in one place. God is no longer all-seeing, no longer everywhere. So there's no need to fear God. So one thing led to the other. So we saw how that wrong footing in the beginning by building the golden calves led them to this point where they have to go to exile. But we also saw how God said, those who are not my people shall be my people. That means they will become God's people again. They will be restored because God made a covenant with Abraham that your descendants, referring to the Israelites, will always be my people and will always possess the land that he was going to give them in Canaan. So the exile was temporarily, was meant to bring them into repentance so that they could be God's people again. So in the last three sermons, we focused on the exile. 
this morning, this afternoon and next Sunday, we will be focusing on the restoration, the new Exodus. So today, we will look at Hosea 8 to 11. Though we are covering four chapters, but there is a distinctive theme to these four chapters. There are three passages in which that phrase, return to Egypt, occurs. And we are going to look at these three passages. The sermon will be based on these three texts. Let's look at the first slide. These are where the three return to Egypt occurs. First of all, 8.13. They will return to Egypt. What does that mean? Return to Egypt. Then the nine tree. You may no longer stay here in the Lord's land. Instead, you will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, you will eat food that is ceremonially unclean. What does that mean? You will no longer stay in the Lord's land. That means you will go into exile, taken out of this land. Because you violated the commandments, you refused to repent. You will go into exile. Where? In Assyria. Is that clear? In Assyria. But that means you return to Egypt. Then finally, in 11.5, Since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. Very clear. They return to Egypt, but they are forced to serve in Assyria. In other words, they will be exiled to Assyria. And that happened in 722 BC. Hosea's prophecy came true. But why does God use the term return to Egypt when he will actually mean you will be exiled to Assyria? This connects us back to not my people. You see, when God said not my people, that means he was revoking the Mosaic covenant. He was actually undoing the exodus. You came out of Egypt. Now you go back to Egypt. Figuratively speaking, as if the exodus never happened. Go back. Just like a husband angry with his wife saying, you go back to your father's house. So what it means was exile to Assyria. But the phrase return to Egypt is crucial. The exile is symbolically returning to Egypt. Uh, that will help us understand a very important concept which is, I will highlight very soon. Now, as I said, Hosea also promised that they will return from exile. Let's look at the next slide. Further down in chapter 11, verses 10 to 12, he says, for someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria. And I will bring them home, says the Lord. The restoration, the promise here. Now again you see, come from Egypt, return from Assyria. What does that mean? Obviously, they will come back from Assyria, literally. But figuratively, they will come out of Egypt 
again. In other words, God is saying, I will start Exodus all over again. I have cancelled out the first one. The Exodus and the Moses. Now they have returned to Egypt. I will bring them out again. The concept of the second Exodus or the new Exodus. This is very prominent in the book of Isaiah and some other prophets. But it is clear here. So Hosea gives us a very clear concept of the second exodus, the new exodus. In other words, the second exodus will be the return to God under the Messiah, the messianic exodus. So we are experiencing as Christians the messianic exodus, the second exodus. Now this concept is not controversial, accepted even by liberal scholars and New Testament scholars. To understand the messianic exodus as an exodus is very crucial. That means it serves the same purpose as the first exodus. And this idea will be very crucial when we come to chapter 11. The messianic exodus, Christ bringing us from darkness into the light, serves the same purpose as God brought us out of Egypt into the promised land. Now, each of the three texts that we saw just now, return to Egypt, also highlight a reason why they had to return to Egypt, why they had to go to exile. Now, when they come out of Egypt again, figuratively speaking, the second exodus under the Messiah, they will not return to the Mosaic covenant again because that covenant failed them. They will return and God will make another covenant called a new covenant, which is what the New Testament is about. We have experienced the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now, it has the same purpose as the Mosaic covenant, to enable God's people to be the light of the world, to know God so that all the peoples of the earth will know God. That was the purpose why God took them out of Egypt. And that is the reason why God saves Save us in Jesus Christ, that we might know God and the rest of the world might know God. Same purpose. God took them out of Egypt so that they will know God and the rest of the world will know God. Same purpose. They failed their purpose. Now, the second exodus is to fulfill that purpose. So this time, God made sure that God's people will not be like His people under the Mosaic Covenant. So the new covenant will have provisions to ensure that the reason they went in exile will not happen again. This is crucial in understanding the three texts there. Each of the texts spells out a reason why they go into exile. So, by looking at why they went into exile and realizing that the new covenant in Christ will ensure that that will not happen again, gives us an idea in what way in Christ we have overcome the world. So let's look at the first one. Next slide. Hosea 8, 11 to 13. Israel has built many altars to take away sin. And these very altars became places for sinning. Even though I gave them all my laws, they act as if those laws don't apply to them. The people love to offer sacrifices to me, feasting on the meat. But I do not accept the sacrifices. 
I will hold my people accountable for their sins and I will punish them. They will return to Egypt, go into exile. So what was the reason given? They treat God's law as if they are foreign, don't apply to them, irrelevant. In other words, they are rejected, implicitly rejected God's law. They will not explicitly reject, implicitly, by saying, these laws don't apply to us. They did not take God's law or God's word seriously. That was the first reason why they went into exile. They did not take God's law, God's word seriously. Because of that, they violated the first commandment, second commandment, all the ten commandments. And the focus is the first and second commandment, worshipping idols, worshipping foreign gods, spiritual adultery. That is the focus of Hosea. We all know that. Spiritual adultery. Not being faithful to God, their husband. Worshipping other gods, spiritual adultery. And it becomes spiritual harlotry. Why? Because adultery for material gains. You see, we must understand the spiritual adultery not in the context of adultery today. Today, people commit adultery not for spiritual gain. But if they do that for money, then we use another term. The ancient term is harlotry. So that's why they have committed spiritual harlotry. They violated the commandments. And we said, because of that, they did not know God. God said, I will hold them accountable. Because when they multiply the altars, they multiply in violation to God's commandments. They multiply in an idolatrous way. God said, therefore, I have... I reject them. They did it for the sake of forgiveness of sin. But in doing that, they are sinning even more. It was very serious for them to take God's word not seriously. To help us appreciate why it was so serious, we have to understand what God's word really was to them. And to, to us, look at the next slide in Deuteronomy chapter 30. God spoke through Moses. This was before they even entered the promised land. They were about to cross the river Jordan to possess the promised land. And uh, God was preparing them. They were actually renewing the covenant. The covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. Now they are just across Jericho, renewing the covenant, getting ready to cross to possess the land. And God spoke to Moses, For this covenant that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In other words, the commandment that he, Moses was giving them, that means the Ten Commandments is not something 
strange to you, far away. It is in your mouth, on your lips, in your heart, in your conscience. You know in your heart. You talk about it. What does that mean? We thought that is God's special revelation. How come Moses said it's already in your heart, on your lips? Well, we have to remember what Paul said in Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. God said, you know, the Gentiles who did not know the law, they, they didn't know about the Ten Commandments, they didn't hear Moses, but they do instinctively the things of the law. You know, the white adultery perhaps, you know, the, the things that is in the Ten Commandments, they, they, they know in heart, showing that the law was written in their hearts, in their conscience, they know. Honor your father and mother. How did Confucius know that? You should not kill, you should not steal. It's there. So Paul is saying in the heart of every human being, God has kind of written his laws in their heart. They know it. Perhaps not very clear. You know, they, they, they certainly know only a father and mother all the way to uh, you should not uh, bear false witness. They know that in the conscience. Uh, it may not be clear about uh, thou shall not covered because Paul said, you know, he, he would have known uh, covetousness was wrong until he read in the law. So that part may be weighed in the heart of a non-believer. Thou shall not covet that covetousness is sin. But most of the other laws they know. Maybe the seventh law they are not very clear. But what about the first three commandments that there is that supreme God in the universe that they should worship? Well, Romans 1 says that everyone knows there is this God in their heart. He actually spelled out that can be known about God is obvious to them, plain to them. By looking at creation, the heart responds and see there must be a God. Of course, Paul said they suppress this knowledge, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. Until 200 years ago, atheism came up. Atheism is a very new development. Everybody agrees that, that atheism is something new development in Europe. Before that, you don't have. Those who do believe, believe God, the fool have said there's no God in their heart. They don't say outwardly. They say in their heart there's no God. That was before the arrival of modern atheism. So people in the heart know God. And Paul, when he was in Athens, remember, Acts 17, he saw an altar to the unknown God. And he preached to them. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's amazing. You know, there was this altar to the unknown God. And God said, I am proclaiming to you this God. That means the Greeks did have a concept of the Creator God. But of course, they didn't know who this God was. They just built an altar to the unknown God. This is of serious significance in mission. And it's not only the Greeks. Today, it has been shown through anthropological studies is the cultures throughout the world, traditional cultures through the world, they all have a concept of a supreme being. The Chinese has their counterpart of the unknown god. They call him Shangti. The Shangti is not from the Bible. Shangti is from Chinese culture. But it has become the translation for God in one of the versions. You see, there are two versions, God, Shen, and Shangti. And 
it has been discovered that there is this altar to heaven. First, they found one near Beijing. 1999, they found one in Xi'an, the capital of the earlier dynasties. This is an altar, not a temple, an altar. You know, with steps up, there's the altar. The, the emperor will have to sacrifice, big sacrifice to this Shangti, this Tian. And in Chinese thinking, Shangti is that supreme ruler. We give the mandate to the king. So they have this concept. So much so that our Chinese-speaking Christians, they pray to Shangti. And they read the Bible, God is Shangti. There was some dispute early on when the early missionary went there, whether to use Shangti or not. But no, today is not an issue anymore. The Chinese-speaking Christian pray to Shangti. That is the unknown God. To the Chinese, not exactly unknown. They had a name. They actually, they have an altar. They actually sacrifices, but only the emperor offers sacrifices. Distorted understanding, but they didn't have an understanding. And then the Korean had their own uh, unknown God. They call him Hananim. When I was lecturing in Singapore, I, I, I had Korean students. I have heard them pray in Korean. I, I couldn't understand a word they pray, but there's one word I understood. Hananim, Hananim. I hear them saying Hananim. I know they are talking about God. And when I taught a class in Sabah on behalf of SDM many years ago, in the class was the president of the SIB, Sabah. I was sharing something to this effect, I, 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 I think, because he shared in their natives, the natives, they also have a concept of this supreme ruler, supreme God. But they don't worship him. They worship these other gods, animism. So he said, I asked them, why don't you worship that God that you know in your heart instead of these other gods? You know what they said? He says, that God, Jau, far away. These other gods, they kachau kachau. In other words, they give us trouble if we don't worship them. Imagine the spiritual darkness. So you see, cultures throughout the world, traditional culture, they have a concept of this supreme God. Just as what Paul said. By looking at Christians, in their heart they know there is this God. Now why is this so significant? This is what we call natural or general revelation. God revealed himself to people to nature, to the heavens, in the heart. And Paul said, they are without excuse. No one on the last day stand before God and say, God, I did not know you exist. That's what Paul said. No excuse. What they have done, they have suppressed the knowledge of God. Now, that natural revelation of God, blur, unclear, God will hold them accountable on the last day. Now, think about that. That general natural revelation to all people, God will hold all people accountable for not responding to that revelation, for suppressing the revelation. Now, what happened when Moses came and God revealed himself through thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and the people heard the living God spoke to them and gave them the Ten Commandments. This is what they call the special or supernatural revelation. The Ten Commandments is not totally new, already in their heart. But now they hear it from God Himself through special revelation. 
Now, if God held all people accountable to the natural revelation, the, the blood revelation, how much more God will hold them accountable for the special revelation? That's why God said, you go to exile. No excuse. But it happened. So, under the new covenant, God will have to fix it so that this will not happen again. So therefore, under the new covenant, we are told in Jeremiah 31, 31, God say, unlike the covenant I made with Moses, you see, under the Moses covenant, the special revelation, the Ten Commandments, were written on tablets of stone. God spoke it on Mount Sinai, and then tablets of stone put in the Ark of the Covenant. But God say, under the new covenant, the revelation, the law of God, will not be on tablets of stone, will be written in their heart. Now, some people got confused. Because Romans 2 already say, the law of God is written in the heart. And now, God said, I will write my laws in the heart. What does that mean? What, what is the difference? You see, we must not assume the same word or same phrase mean the same thing in different contexts. For example, the idea of the presence of God. Is God present everywhere? Yes, right? We all know that. David say, where do I go? From the presence. You cannot run away from God's presence. But in Jonah, he tried to run away from the presence of God. So obviously, the presence of God in one context is not the same as the other context. In one context, that means He's omnipresent, he's, he's everywhere. In another sense, presence of God means where God manifested himself in Israel. So we must look at the context. In the context of Romans, God writes his law in the heart of everyone. That means God put that law in the conscience of every human being. So it is something that everyone is born with. But under the new covenant, God will write his law not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. Uh, that knowledge is what we are born again with. You see, in Romans, God's writing of the law is in terms of natural revelation in the human conscience. In Jeremiah, the new covenant, it is God's writing of the law in the context of supernatural revelation. That means the Israelites, because of God's supernatural revelation, on top of what they already know in the heart, that everybody even knows God gave them supernatural, clear, explicit commandments. Okay? Now, God said, under the new covenant, the supernatural religion will be in the heart. Therefore, Christians say, God's people under the new covenant will know God's commandment in a way the Israelites never knew. The Israelites were just like the nations. They only had the conscience that they were born with. They never had that law they are born again with that came through Jesus Christ. So therefore, to ensure that this never happened again, that God's people will reject His words and say, these things don't apply to me. That this will never happen again to someone who is a believer under the new covenant. That means a Christian will never say, God's word is not relevant to me. Because Christ 
God has fixed that through Christ by putting the law, supernatural revelation into the heart of everyone who truly believes in Jesus and repent of his sin. So God has fixed that. First reason, taken care of. Let's look at the second reason. Next slide. 9, 1 to 3. O people of Israel, do not rejoice as other nations do, for you have been unfaithful to your God, having yourselves, turning yourself, hiring yourselves out like prostitutes, worshipping other gods on every threshing floor. So now your harvest will be too small to feed you. There will be no grace for, your new, for making new wine. You may no longer stay here in the lost land. Instead, you will return to Egypt, and in Assyria, you will eat food that is ceremonial and clean. I suppose the text is clear after what we have been through. Because of the idolatry, idolatrous worship, they will go to exile. But here, the second reason why they go to exile is because they rejoice like other nations do. This rejoicing has to do with the rejoicing they had when they had a good harvest. You see? The other nation, the Canaanites, worshipped Baal. They believed the Baal was in control of the weather. You see? For agriculture, weather is very important. The right time for the rain to come. It's very important. And fertility. So they believed that if you want economic security and prosperity, you must worship the Baals. So the Israelites were influenced by the Canaanites. So they began to worship like the Canaanites. And when they had a good harvest, they began to rejoice like the Canaanites. And we saw in chapter 2 that they gave credit for the material blessings to the idols, not to God. And God said they did not realize that I was the one who blessed them with all these things. And they used this thing and blessed them with to worship. They gave back to Baal. So this rejoicing is about rejoicing in what the nation trusts in for economic security and prosperity. They were living just like the nations, the non-believers. They were behaving, rejoicing, just like the non-believers. Now, this is the consequence of that, not observing the commandments. You see, in Deuteronomy, before they enter, God told them, He fed them manna for 40 years so that they will learn that they will live not by bread alone, but by every word that God says. In other words, they do not depend on the normal means of making a living. In the wilderness, they could not sow, they could not harvest. God provided bread from heaven so that they know we don't have to depend on the normal means of making a living. God can provide through means we have never imagined. The idea is when they enter the promised land, the manna stop. They have to use the normal means of making a living. They have to sow and to reap just like everybody else. But they have to learn a lesson in the wilderness that when they sow and reap, they will give credit to God and not to the foreign gods. And God said, if you keep my commandments, I will ensure the rain will come in proper time. Your economic security and prosperity is in God's hand. Just keep the commandments. If they had kept God's commandment, they will have experience that it was God who continued to provide them, that the economic security and prosperity is in God, then they will be rejoicing in God, not in the idols like the other nations. They failed to do that. 
then the focus of the vision will be God. Then their life will be around, revolving around the commandments. But they, they did not keep the commandments for the reason that we saw earlier. Therefore, they did not experience that God is their provider. So they did not rejoice in God for God's provision for them. They rejoice just like the nations. For Christians, Jesus has rephrased that to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. How does God fix the problem that God's people will put their trust in the things that the world, the people of the world trust in for economic security and prosperity? How does God fix the problem? Yes, Jesus gave the command. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Your economic security and prosperity is in God's hand. Though Jesus only promised economic security, all these things, means all basic needs, but we know God has given more than our basic needs. We do experience economic prosperity. But who do we credit it to? Do we credit it to the things that the world credit to when they experience economic prosperity? Now, God's people will not reject God's word. They are more likely to observe God's commandment. And God fixed this problem by giving us the Holy Spirit. That is a special provision under the new covenant that is not found in the old covenant. What's that covenant? And Jesus, in the context of saying, I will send the Holy Spirit as a replacement, another helper to be with you, to be dwelling in you. And Jesus said, to him who loved me and keep my commandments, I will manifest myself to him. John 14. In other words, under the new covenant, every individual believer has the Holy Spirit. And Christ will manifest Himself in and through the person of the Holy Spirit to those who love Him and obey His commands. That's what He promised in John 14. That means when believers in Christ love Him and obey His commandments, Christ becomes real to them through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit manifests Christ. And when Christ becomes real, to a believer, he will obey Christ's command. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And when he does that, he will realize that yes, this promise is true, and he will rejoice in Christ for his economic security and prosperity. His vision will be focused on Christ, his God, his love, his life will revolve around Christ. That is what Jesus himself promised. That is how God fixed the second problem, that God's people will rejoice, not in God or Christ, for the economic security and prosperity that experience. They will not behave like the world, put their trust in the things that non-believers put their trust in for economic security and prosperity. Now, this is not to say that, you know, the Israelites will be perfect. 
God did not expect them to be perfect. Nobody could keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. That's why built into the Mosaic Covenant was a sacrificial system. When they violate God's commandment, they are to repent and offer a sacrifice and be forgiven. The problem with them was not that they violated the Ten Commandments. The problem was when they violated it, they refused to repent and receive forgiveness. That was the problem. It is not possible for a Christian to be also perfect in giving the good commandment. It is possible to be influenced by the world, just like the Israelites, to trust in the things that the world trusts in for economic security and prosperity. Still can happen to a Christian, especially when we are still learning to walk with God. This brings us to the third reason why they go to exile. 11, 1 to 11. So I'll read through the whole text so that we will get the context. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called him, to him, the further he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck and I myself stooped to feed him. But since my people refused to return to me, they will return to Egypt and they will be, will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through the cities. The enemies will crash through the gates. They will destroy them trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Then the promise, which I read just now, for some days the people will follow me, is I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, the people will return, trembling from the west, like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt, trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. Let's focus on the first part first. The reason why they go to exile. They refuse to repent. You see? God did not expect His people in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for us to keep His commandments perfectly. Not possible. But the problem is they refuse to repent. And how does God fix this problem? Refusing to repent when God's people sin. Ezekiel tells us that the Holy Spirit when He comes, He will give us a new heart, change our heart of stone to heart of flesh, a new spirit, a repentant heart, a repentant spirit. The Israelites were just like the, the nations. The natural heart they were born with, they have the law, the conscience they are born with. But believers in Christ, have a heart they are born again with a repentant heart. That means a believer in Christ will be responsive to the preaching of God's word. Israel was not. The prophets were sent. God said, the more I call them, the more they run away. That was what happened to them. And this will not happen to believers in Christ. That the more God speaks to them through the preaching of His word, the more they run away. 
This will not happen. That's how God fixed it. God gave them a new heart, a new spirit. So you see, by the grace of God, He has not only set His people free from the penalty of sin, but begin to learn to overcome the power of sin. A new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit within the heart. See the three reasons? Re- implicitly rejecting the word of God, rejoicing like the world, and refuse to repent. So believers under the new covenant, that means Christians, have that new heart, will be responsive to God's word, the preaching of God's word. Of course, this will assume that God's people under the new covenant will be regularly listening to the preaching of His Word. That God's people under the new covenant will find themselves a part of a community where Christ is honored and His Word is preached. Otherwise, these repentant parts will not come true. Christians do still sin. Christians do still trust in the things of this world because especially in the modern world, it's so tempting. We live in this world, though we are not of this world, but the pressure, you know, the pressure of this world is so strong. And Paul said, do not be conformed to this world. The pressure we face is unbelievable. When we work in this world, live in this world, we fail easily, we fall, and we will begin to be like the non-believers. But unlike the Israelites, the Christian is repentant. As long as the Christian is part of a community where repentance can become real. So a Christian community, there are at least two things that will ensure that the Christian will repent. The Lord's Supper. Because you know why? Paul makes it very clear. Before you partake Lord's Supper, you must confess your sin. You cannot partake Lord's Supper unworthily. And in our church, we don't wait for the Lord's Supper. In our worship service, we already build that into time of confession. So the Christian community has that built up, have that structure where we come and examine ourselves and confess our sins. And of course, the preaching of this word to ensure that the Christian will not be like the Israelites. They will repent. Think, talking about the Christian community brings out a very important point that some of you may be interested in, maybe already thinking about it, because Hosea 11 is the famous verse where God said, Out of Egypt I call my son. And Matthew 2.15 quoted this verse and applied it to Jesus. You see, Jesus fled to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him, destroying babies 12, uh, two years below. So his parents brought him to Egypt. And after Herod died, Egypt came out of, uh, Jesus came out of Egypt. And Matthew quoted this verse and said, this is fulfilled. Out of Egypt I call my son. And those of us who bother to check it out, will see, hey, Hosea is not talking about the Messiah here. Hosea is talking about, I call Israel out of Egypt. He's talking about Israel. Hosea 11.1, I call Israel out of Egypt. And uh, 
And the more I call him, the more they run away. He's not talking about the Messiah. Then how could Matthew quote this verse and apply it to Jesus? And this is the classic example used by scholars that say, you see, the New Testament quote the Old Testament out of context. See, the context clearly says that my son here refers to Israel, not the Messiah. And Matthew applied it to Jesus the Messiah. You see, they have not understood the context. Since we are talking about this text, it's a good time. Because if we just look at Matthew 11, we still have to go back to Isaiah, explain all over again to answer the question. Since we have already done the explaining all over again, let's deal with this problem. What is God saying here when he says, out of, out of Egypt, I call my son. You see, God is saying, I call Israel out of Egypt for a purpose. The purpose is so that they will know God and eat and through them, all the nations will know God. That was the purpose. But instead of knowing God, they didn't know God. They refused to repent. Therefore, they go to exile. But God said, how can I give you up? So God will bring them out of Egypt again, the second exodus under Messiah. So this text is about the second exodus. The first exodus is highlighted to say that they failed the purpose of bringing out, bringing out of Egypt the first time. Now the second time I bring them out is to fulfill the purpose. And what is the purpose? So that they might know God and through them, the people of the world might know God. So the purpose that the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, their fail will be fulfilled in the second exodus. That means through the church. We are the people under the new covenant, the second exodus, through the church. If we did read Matthew, that is what we get out of Hosea. God said, I called them out of Egypt for a purpose. They failed their purpose. So they themselves go to exile. I'm going to call them out again for Egypt so that this time they will fulfill the purpose. Okay? That is what based on Hosea. But Matthew showed us something that we might have missed if we just look at Hosea 11. Because Matthew say Jesus fulfilled that purpose that they failed to fulfill. Now, understand it this way. Why did God say, out of Egypt I call my son? Out of the blue. It's like a father said, I sent my son to university. But he spent his time playing computer games. He flung his exams and he dropped out. Okay? Now, why did the father say this? I sent my son to university. But he spent his time playing computer games. He flung the exam. He dropped out. Just like God said, I called my son out of Egypt. They sinned. They worship idols. So they dropped out. I have to send them to exile. God, just like this father, is highlighting the purpose. He said, I sent my son to university so that they get a degree and come back and take over my business. Now, if the father has not given up on his son, still want his son to take over his business, he will say, I have to send my son to university again to fulfill the original purpose. Why I send him to university? So God in Hosea 11 is saying, out of Egypt I call my son to fulfill a purpose. So the focus of that saying, I call out of Egypt I call my son, is not a fact that he took them out of Egypt. It's the purpose why he took them out. 
just like the father said, I sent my son to university. He is not concerned about the fact that he did that. He was concerned about the purpose why he sent him there. That is nature of human language. So in other words, when we read out of Egypt, I call my son, think of the purpose. God was thinking of the purpose that they failed. So in other words, when Matthew said Jesus fulfilled that, Matthew is saying Jesus fulfilled the purpose why God took them out of Egypt. And this is very clear in the book of Isaiah. That the servant, the, the, the Messiah, took over the place of Israel to be the light of the world, that he will be the light that Israel failed to be. And that mission has fallen into the church to be the light, second light of the world. So you see, what happened is this. Matthew understood the context that out of Egypt, I call my son, is about the purpose why God took them out of Egypt, not the fact. So he's not saying Jesus fulfilled the fact, but in a sense, Jesus actually came out of Egypt. Literally. But Jesus did not have to come out of Egypt literally to fulfill that purpose. So Matthew was looking at the whole context, the purpose. He's saying that Jesus fulfilled the purpose that the Israelites should have fulfilled. And this is significant for us. If you didn't understand anything I said just now, never mind. Come to this. Jesus fulfilled the purpose for us. We will fulfill God's purpose to be sock and line the God's purpose to know him and to through us that the world will know him that purpose is fulfilled for us by Jesus Christ already that's what Matthew help us understand because Hosea himself is talking about God will take his people out of Egypt again to fulfill the purpose and Matthew is saying that purpose is fulfilled by Jesus that means God's purpose for his people you and I has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We fulfill God's purpose in Christ. Ephesians says, we are not only died and raised in Jesus Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Christ replaces us, represents us, substitutes us. Everything that happened to Christ has happened to us. And this is to help us appreciate what I said about the community. You see, we fulfill that purpose as a community in Christ. No one who becomes a Christian becomes an individual Christian because the moment we truly repent our sin and believe in Jesus, we are baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ. We are placed into the community of Christ spiritually. There is no such thing as an individual Christian. Christian is always part of the community in Christ. Therefore, not a Christian who truly believes in Jesus will always have the desire to be part of the community where Christ is honored, his word is preached. By giving us a spirit and through the spirit unite us with Christ, we are part of the body of Christ. Somehow, in our spiritual life, in our spiritual heart, something is missing when we are not part of a community where Christ is honored and His word preached. You see, God fixed this problem. You see, how God fixed each of the problem of uh, rejecting God's word, of rejoicing that the non-believers, behaving like non-believers and not repenting. So that we will always be part of a community in which we will have opportunity to examine ourselves and to repent 
God has placed a spirit in us so that there is always that longing to be part of the community. When a Christian, wherever he goes, wherever which country he goes to, he will look out for fellow Christians. And the amazing thing is for those of us who have traveled, when we meet fellow Christians in other parts of the world, we have met for the first time, we can talk as if we were old friends. Why? That bond in Christ. It is unmistakable. And I've always been thanking God since the pandemic that the pandemic did not happen earlier. It did not happen when a time we could not have the technology to meet online. Imagine the pandemic happened before we could have Zoom or the technology to, to worship together, to hear God's word together, to at least see one another's face, to feel that we are part of the community. Imagine By the mercy of God, this pandemic happened after we have this technology. So every Christian can fulfill that desire, even when we cannot meet physically, to be able to be connected in some way. So I hope you see how, again, Hosea present familiar truth in unfamiliar ways to give us a fresh understanding of what it means to be in Christ. That how God, through Christ, solved the weakness of the Mosaic Covenant. That the reason why they failed God, the reason why they went to exile will never happen. Of course, there is a period of growth. But in Christ, we have this hope that together we grow together, that we will fulfill the purpose why God took Israel out of Egypt to be God's people who know God and through whom all the peoples of the earth will also know God. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you so much for your word, for your assurance that in Christ you have solved the problem of the Mosaic Covenant. That what we read about in the Old Testament that happened to your people then will not happen to your people under the New Covenant. That we have this assurance in Christ who have fulfilled that purpose for us that in Him together we grow together that we will fulfill your purpose, your original purpose, why you took Israel out of Egypt and why you take them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to your glory. And in Jesus' name we give you praise and thanks. 